0: In this week's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Jen O'Ryan, founder of Double Tall Consulting and author of Inclusive AF. This week, our conversation is about Ben and Jerry's cannabis company, Mr. Beast's support of the trans community, and much more. Hey there, my name is Bernadette Smith. Welcome to Five Things in 15 Minutes, my weekly show where I bring good vibes to DEI. That is good vibes to diversity, equity, and inclusion, with a little dash of corporate social responsibility. What i found is that there are lots of news stories about what's going wrong in the world and lots of negative data, but there are also a lot of things going right. That's what I like to focus on. I search for DEI stories that we can be inspired by and learn from. My hope is to inspire you to experiment with some of these inclusive actions and policies within your own organization to help you build a more inclusive world. Jen, will you please uh, introduce yourself? Welcome to the show. Yes.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited for this. Yeah. So as you said, I work in the DEI space. I'm a strategist and practitioner. So I help organizations and individuals within those organizations really get better at DEI. So that can mean workshops, education, sitting down and having them ask me all the awkward questions that they don't want to look up on the internet and really shouldn't. So that's that's who I am.
0: That's fantastic. So, tell everyone a little bit about your book. It sound. I love the title, by the way. <laughs>
1: Thank you. That was actually the working title while I was while I was in the writing process, and it it launched in September of 2020 or released in 2020. And everything that was 2020, the the silver unrest. I mean, it started with Australia being on fire and and all of that systemic change and uncertainty. I, I realized that I wanted to release a book under that title. Um, as a field guide for accidental diversity experts because we can't be polite about DEI anymore. We can't, we can't put it on the back burner. We can't just give it lip service. We have to be all in. And so I figured by calling it inclusive AF, I would one rule out performative allies who just want to have something on the bookshelf. And I would really find those, those change agents, those change instigators who see how they can make their corner of the world a little bit better, or maybe something better for somebody they've never even met. And they just want to know where to do it, how to start and how to avoid burnout.
0: Yeah, I love that because what I've found is that there are so many people with really good intentions, but they just don't really know where to start or they get overwhelmed or they're afraid of saying the wrong thing. So it sounds like your book makes it a lot more approachable for them yeah th- absolutely. That was my intent. and it's it
1: it's written very much in a way like you and I are sitting in a coffee shop across from each other, and you're like, I have this thing I want to do, and I don't know where to start. Yeah, and it just it breaks it down and and just makes it really achievable for people.
0: I love it. I love it. So in your work with clients, will you tell me about what's giving you hope?
1: So what gives me hope, especially now that we've got we're, we're seeing so much again uncertainty and and legislation and and all these different things coming in from every part of our ecosystem it is really people are starting to be open to conversations they're starting to ask questions and and people are seeing that change is necessary and so i i have the approach of it you know we change we change one conversation at a time but we need that and we also need action we need systemic action and so what gives me hope is i see people through all of this turmoil and uncertainty and and horrific events, coming and saying, I, I I, can make a change. I can use what I have available to me to amplify voices or educate my peers because I can have access to places that not everybody else does. And so that is what gives me hope, this, this top-down and grassroots effort of we need to change this.
0: I love that. That's fantastic. Okay. So in my Five Things newsletter this week, I wrote about how You know, in this whole hybrid world and in this world of um, just kind of polarization, there's a lot of disconnection. And I had a conversation last week as prep for a keynote speech. And it was with a client um, that had issued return to office mandates, found that when they did, Productivity was actually higher when folks were working remotely. So then they rescinded the mandates and basically said, you know, basically do what you want to do. But now they're finding that while most employees are working at home, they're also reporting a lack of belonging, especially those who were hired during the pandemic or onboarded. And they're also reporting higher levels of burnout because there's not that separation that comes with the commute. So I was writing about this concept of connection before content, which is an approach to starting a meeting where you're focusing on sort of the individual stories, even if it's just a check in on on the team level. Check ins about something like, let's, what's everyone share? What's one thing that's going right this week and one thing that's a struggle? And it creates an opportunity for leaders and even peers or team members check in on each other afterwards as sort of a a more intentional focused way to, to connect as opposed to just sort of getting right to the content. So can you talk to me a little bit about what you're hearing in your work, what your experience has been with, with this disconnect?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that is, that is, that is so common because I, I did a lot of work when companies were looking at returning to the office and, and, you know, how do you, how do you design that? Because the 15 people that you had on the team that all work together in the same office, aren't the same 15 people that are coming back to the office, right? We've just fundamentally changed through the 18 months, two years, whatever, whatever the time elapsed. Um, And so what I do is I, I I encourage them to really look at the dynamics and the, the makeup of their team and find a way to bring them together in a way that's very organic because I'm, I'm a huge fan of, we have, we have to connect as humans, right? But then there's also an element of, if you're on a Zoom call with the same eight people every week, maybe some people aren't comfortable sharing what they did over the weekend. Maybe you know somebody it brings up a topic and it doesn't really apply to everybody else. And so there can also be that isolation or feeling of really not belonging with the group. And so finding different ways, yes, you absolutely need that. But also, is there a way that you can bring everybody together to do something that's more gamified, like solve a crossword puzzle altogether? Right. And having people weigh in because then you also get to see the diverse perspectives and and knowledge of of your team. Right. Something like that. And, And there are lots of apps that you can use in Zoom or, you know, whatever your teleconference software is that just brings people organically and it's not having to do with anything about work. But the one thing that I caution is that in this rush to return to the office, some companies are experiencing pressure to do, we're also missing out on a huge employee base. Like there's so many people who uh, you know have are amazingly talented, but they're largely ignored because they can't physically show up at a corporate space in Seattle or Denver or wherever the company is headquartered. So i I it, it's all about humanizing the process. We got it if you have an attrition problem or a retention problem, you have a, a human problem. And when you wrap up the solution around individual humans, it, it's much more effective,
0: yeah, that makes sense. I like the idea of sort of virtual team building type events. And, and I've never heard of the virtual crossword puzzle idea, but that sounds like fun. That's cool. I like that. So, and I think that that's really well said that if you have a retention problem, you have a human problem that makes, it makes a lot of sense. And I think that will resonate with a lot of people. Interesting. Okay. So let's get into this week's good vibes. So this month is Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, and because of that, Mattel is introducing a new Barbie doll based on Hollywood pioneer Anna Mae Wong. So I've actually written about Barbie quite a bit in Five Things, and because Barbie is constantly showing us new ways to represent folks— and Anime Wong was the first Chinese American film star back in the early part of the 20th century. And her niece was actually involved in the creation of this Barbie doll and is helping keep her legacy alive. So it's just another form of representation. And I think Barbie, above all brands that I've seen, is particularly good at this.
1: Yep, yeah, I would I would agree. I would put Barbie up there with them, um, with Lego.
0: Yeah, I like, oh, the research.
1: It tends to be very well informed. They they bring in their experts from across a myriad of lived experiences, and yeah, I would agree with that.
0: Yeah, the representation I just think is incredibly important. I mean, we don't see a lot of celebrations of Asian American folks. We just don't.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think one of the most important things when we're talking about representation is representation that's that's authentic. That you aren't bringing that representation in because that representation somehow serves a purpose in the larger narrative. Yeah. You know what I mean? That, 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 that that person is the focal point.
0: Yeah. And that's one of the things I like about the story, the fact that her niece is involved and they're not just, you know, making a, a doll that's a commercial product, but they're also donating funds as well to this community. Mm-hmm. And it's in- improving visibility. I mean, how many kiddos are growing up and having no idea that
1: this, this person contributed so much and was you know a front runner
0: and i didn't know about anime wong until a couple months ago when i wrote about the fact that she was on i think a quarter on um or maybe a stamp i forget what it was but i wrote about her a few months ago as well because i mean i just didn't we're i'm still learning you know that's one of the reasons i do five things is to keep my learning journey alive for sure okay the second story this week is about how Ben Cohen, who is one of the co-founders of Ben and Jerry's Ice Cream, has a new cannabis company that was set up as a nonprofit organization based in Vermont. But what I love about this is that 100% of the profits of this company is being donated to organizations that fund Black-owned cannabis businesses or businesses that help get those folks released from prison on cannabis charges, because the racist war on drugs has meant that black folks have been disproportionately imprisoned for cannabis use and, and crack as well, as opposed to cocaine. White folks weren't put in prison at nearly the same numbers for cocaine use. So I, I love this story. It's a great equity piece.
1: Agree, and I grant. I, I'm so glad you brought up the the crack versus cocaine because that the criminalization of that and the disparities is just un, unheard of. And I, I do feel that that companies and, and especially large corporations they do have an obligation to give back to the community, and it's not necessarily just the community in which they operate, but the larger community. They they can have tremendous influences on people's perceptions.
0: Yeah, I agree, and. Ben started this in part because back in the day he was just issued a, like a ticket or a citation for, for smoking pot. He, he got off the hook. Right. And, and he knew at the time that that was a privilege because of his race. And he sort of Mm -hmm. filed that away for, you know, (laughs) use many years later when he started this company. And I have actually been in a similar situation personally, which, I've written about before, but I think that it's just really important to kind of be aware of the privilege that comes with our race and and sort of the experiences we don't have to think about or suffer from. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and it, it it all it all lends into itself, right? So it's
1: it's the economic inequalities and socioeconomic level and what you have access to, right? So if you're doing cocaine and you're in your house in the middle of Beverly Hills. I don't know why I'm picking up Beverly Hills, but just we'll just go with it. Um, Austin. I don't know. Um, but if you're out in the middle of nowhere at your house doing cocaine, the police aren't going to bother you. It, if you happen to be driving a car with a tail light out, then you're going to get pulled over, and that experience is going to be um, extremely risky for you. And and who knows what, right? Um, and so yeah, it, it, it just the, the disparities are are incredible, and I think a lot of that really goes. Um, just not really well appreciated. We don't acknowledge it as much when, when we talk about privilege or, or what we have access to, what we have available.
0: Well, when we acknowledge it, it means that uh, there can be some guilt, right? And I think a lot of us white folks don't like to feel guilty <laughs> about our privilege, right? Yeah,
1: I like to uh, I like to liken it like it's like pushing, it, it, it's, re- it's a removal of friction. It's things that I don't have to think about because of how I look and things I do have to think about because how I look, but it's very different. Do you know what I mean? Yep. Um, it's I like it to like pushing a sled across the ice is very different than pushing it across shag carpeting. Sure. Absolutely. It, it just and I, I don't want to oversimplify but for some reason that visual seems to click with the the older white men that I have had had the privilege of working through with this.
0: Awesome. I love that one. Okay so the third story this week is about YouTuber Mr. Beast who is one of my son's favorite YouTubers. His name is Jimmy Donaldson. And he has um, he has a friend who's been on his show for years now, a high school friend, childhood friend called Chris Tyson. Well, last month Chris Tyson came out as transgender and began hormone replacement therapy. And despite all of the flack that Chris received online, what I loved is that Mr. Beast himself was super supportive of Chris, and that Chris is going to continue to appear in these videos. You know, these are. Folks who are based in North Carolina, the U.S. South, place where there are a lot of anti-trans folks, and I think, and given the visibility of Mr. Beast, I just think it's absolutely amazing that Mr. Beast is showing that support, and that Chris is going to continue to be on the show. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. And I think that goes back to exactly what we were just talking about. If you have this available to you, you amplify voices because it people will hear it differently from Mr. Beast than you know, me or somebody else. And I think that's also, we lose track of, in all of this, I think that we're our own barometer for normal, right? Like whatever I am to me, that is the baseline for the threshold for normal. And I think we have an automatic response to anything that falls outside of that is like, oh, that's weird or, oh, that's odd, right? And, and it's it's not, it's just different. And so we need to position that as just learning about another lived experience, rather than adding a value judgment to it just because we personally have never heard of it or or don't know what it is.
0: Exactly. Well, what Mr. Beast tweeted was this is getting absurd all this transphobia is starting to piss me off. So I think that's <laughs> that's a quote we can all learn from, right? To speak out in that way, I think is is really critical to use that privilege. And think about how quickly that disrupts
1: the the resistance that you might be getting. Right. It just it's it's quick. It's succinct. It's it, it's not a huge, you know, paragraphs long article about why you feel the way that you do. It's just like this is ridiculous. Just stop. It yeah. it, it influences you. Zero. It affects you.
0: None. Exactly. OK, the fourth story is about a company called Smart which is a sponsor of Formula One Racing, F1 Racing. And as a result of that sponsorship, they get logo space on McLaren F1 cars. So Smartsheet has decided that instead of putting their logo on the cars, they are giving that space to various nonprofit organizations in a project they call Sponsor X. So, for example, at a recent Austin race, that spot went to the Hidden Genius Project, a nonprofit that trains and mentors black men in our black male youth and technology creation, entrepreneurship, and leadership skills, they're also raising money for these organizations, providing them a software training, technology. I mean, I absolutely love this story.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was I was so heartened when I saw that because it's like, yeah, it's it's bringing to the surface organizations that are doing amazing work that might never ever be be known. Although it was like a yes and. Because the first thing that popped up to me is like, what's the selection process? Like, who is like, how are they learning about all of these? Because that can also introduce an element of bias. And, you know, which one are we amplifying? And so, yeah, you know, I'm sure they have a diverse board of and very inclusive process. I'm sure they do. But if they don't, this is a reminder too. Or if you're not F1 and you're trying to do this yourself, just kind of be aware of any time you can influence bias.
0: Jen. All uh, longtime listeners or viewers of the show know that it's all—it's always a yes and. <laughs> all of these stories are a yes and. Yes, yes. It's all about it's all about the execution and the follow through. That's right. Um, okay, the fifth story this week comes from U.S. Representative Angie Craig from Minnesota, who became the first Congressperson to no longer require degrees to get a job in her legislative offices despite 70% of new jobs nationwide require degrees. Now this is called the paper ceiling and it disproportionately affects BIPOC folks who are less likely to have degrees due to systemic racism and discrimination.
1: Yeah, and I have so many thoughts about this because I, I, it, I so full disclosure, I spent the first 25 years of my career coming up in tech and that was to get through the door, you had to have a bachelor's degree, preferably a master's for even the most uh, entry-level positions. And I'm, I love that there's now, and I'm sure I'm just learning about it, that the paper ceiling, because that is, that is true. It, I mean, it just, it, it it's one of those things that it doesn't seem like a big deal if somebody is inside that environment, but it keeps the structure in place. Those rules keep the structure in place. Those rules keep the certain people that they want to have in these corporations. They, you know, some ambiguous gay, they, um, that they, they the structure's in place to keep certain people there and certain people not there. And it's, yeah, I mean, just the lack of opportunity for all these amazingly talented human beings, it needs to be evaluated. Why are we asking for this?
0: Yeah. And it's the first time I've actually heard the term, the paper ceiling. Um, But I think it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, when there's such a, a movement and it is a movement to hire more diversity or to increase the representation, that one of the simplest things any organization can do is to remove degree requirements. Mm-hmm. And yet 70% of new jobs still require them. So I I think I'm a big advocate of this. Well and it
1: also goes back to um, you know, a couple of generations ago, getting a college degree wasn't as prohibitively expensive as it is now. Like I, I'm based in Seattle and you know I love go dogs. I love University of Washington, but it is so much more expensive than it was two generations ago. And so it's not just that they're saying you have to go through this educational journey and get a degree, which may or may not even apply to the work that you're doing there. I mean, when I was at a large tech company on the east side of Washington, I was working with people with fashion degrees, which is great, but there are technical positions that has nothing to do. So, but So it's not just that, yes, give up two to four years of your life and go do this piece, get the piece of paper so that you can get the job. It's also incurring a a lifetime of debt. For many people.
0: Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much for those thoughts, Jen. Um, So this week's call to action is an article in the Harvard Business Review, why you should start A-B testing your DEI initiatives. And we'll make sure that gets put in the show notes. But I think it's an interesting and certainly a worthy read for organizations who are really looking to get more serious traction on systemic change, change not just training. So check out that article. And Jen, how can folks find you?
1: Oh, uh, so I have a webpage. Uh, it's pagingdrjen.com. I also hang out a lot on LinkedIn. So yes, please, happy to connect with any of your listeners and continue the conversation. Um, yeah, it, it, it's those conversations that, that that make it hopeful and make change possible.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Jen. Everyone, thank you for listening. I hope you have a fantastic week. And if you don't already get the Five Things newsletter, you can subscribe at fivethingsdei.com. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to Five Things in 15 Minutes. I hope you found yourself inspired by at least one of this week's stories. If you did, would you mind sharing it with a colleague and leaving us a review on your favorite podcasting platform? And if you don't already get my Five Things newsletter, join at fivethings.dei.com. I'm Bernadette Smith, and I'll see you next week right here for Five Things in 15 Minutes, bringing good vibes to DEI.